right, good morning. It is so good to see everyone here. I am uh, excited about this, excited that we all get to be together. You know, it's hard to really know who someone is. It's hard to accurately know someone. It's much easier to misunderstand someone or to assume things about someone that aren't true. It's easy to judge people, to assume negative things about others. We, we do this all the time, right? And we try to counter this tendency by saying things like, well, don't judge a book by its cover. In the book To Kill a Mockingbird, one of the characters um, in that book is Boo Radley. He lives on the same street as the Finch family, and Boo Radley is a spooky person. He is a recluse. He only comes out at night. There are many strange and horrific stories about him that the town believes, and the young Finch kids, Jem and Scout, they believe all these stories. Boo is like the boogeyman, and they're scared of him. At the end of the book, spoiler alert, Atticus Finch, the dad who was a lawyer, defends a man in an important court case. After the case, one of the men who is made to look bad in the case decides to take revenge. And in the climactic scene, he attacks Jem and Scout as they walk home from a Halloween party. But it's right in front of the spooky Radley house. And Boo Radley intervenes by protecting the kids and literally saving their lives. Boo then carries the, the wounded gem back to Atticus's house to make sure he's safe. And he then sits and talks with Scout for a while, revealing what a kind and compassionate man he is. And then Boo disappears back into the Radley house. The kids assumed that they knew Boo Radley. They thought they understood who he was, but they were very wrong. You know, it's hard to know who God really is, to accurately know him and what he's like. It's much easier to misunderstand God or to mischaracterize him. It's easy to assume things about God that aren't true. It's actually easy to make judgments about God. We all do it, and we do it all the time. I mean, just think about how God is portrayed in our society. Take The Simpsons, for example. In The Simpsons, God is always screwing things up and making people suffer for no reason. He's arbitrary and irresponsible and vindictive. He doesn't seem to care about the people that he created. In one scene, God is actually playing video games and not paying attention to the world. If The Simpsons is where you get your understanding of God, your perspective might need a little adjustment. Now, Moses had a similar problem in the book of Exodus. He had encountered God for the first time in Exodus chapter 3, and in Exodus chapter 33, which is probably seven months later, he still doesn't really know who God is. 
He doesn't really know God. He's confused. He doesn't feel like he understands God. Maybe you can relate to that. In Exodus 33, 13, Moses says to God, God, show me who you are. I want to know you. I, I don't really know you. You say you know me, but I don't know you. Tell me who you are. Show me your glory. So God actually agrees to give Moses a little glimpse of who he is, to reveal to Moses who he is. And what God reveals is shocking. It blows up Moses' perception of God, and hopefully it will blow up ours. In Exodus 34, I'm going to read this. It will also appear on the screens. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I, this is God, I, God, will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, let me give you a little background to this passage. Moses was summoned up to Mount Sinai to receive the law. So think Ten Commandments. And while Moses was gone, the people got impatient. They couldn't wait for Moses. He was gone for like 40 days, so they compelled Aaron, Moses' assistant, to make a golden calf. And then they worshipped it. I mean, just like that, they turned away from God. So when Moses comes down from the mountain and sees all the people dancing and worshiping the golden calf, he smashes the Ten Commandments in anger and he rebukes the people. Moses had no patience for this kind of gross, inexcusable, really cataclysmic sin. They're worshiping a golden calf. Moses had no patience for this. But God does. Even though God should be the one who's angry and smashing things. This is why in verse 1, God says to cut two tablets of stone, come back up to the top of the mountain. God's saying, let's try this again. And you might recall that the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, it didn't take him long to break that one. And the second commandment says, you shall not make any idol. Well, it didn't take him long to replace God with a God of their own making. So God, in his patience, 
calls Moses back up to the mountain, and there he reveals who he is. That's verse 6, the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful. A God merciful. This, this is what God is like. He is merciful. He's, he's compassionate. This word captures the, the emotional concern that God has for us. His heart goes out to us in compassion, and he's merciful, which means he doesn't give us what we deserve. Let me give an illustration. When I was in high school, we used to go skiing to this place called Mount Snow. And after we would ski, uh, my brother and I would, would just basically go out at night and look for trouble. And one ski trip, I was there on my own, and there was this main lodge, and then over on the other side was this small little lodge, and there was a gap between that lodge and the trees. So I was in my 74 Chevy Impala with a lot of other kids with us, and I gunned it as fast as I could and went between the lodge and those trees and started to drive up the ski slope. <laughs> I mean, just for fun. And so I was going up in the 74 Pal, like going up, everyone is screaming, we're going up as far as we can. I probably got maybe, I don't know, 150 yards up. It was pretty steep. And, and there were a couple miscalculations that I made. There was actually a lot, but the main one was that it had just snowed like the night before, like nine inches, a lot of fresh snow. I came up and I started to go back and I turned the wheel and I went back into the ruts that I had made and we got stuck. And so my friend Jeff and I got out of the car. We didn't even, there were other kids and girls in the car. We didn't even get them out and tried to lift the car. We were like, you know, seriously, like a buck 25 soaking wet with two bricks in our pocket, trying to lift an Impala with other people in the car. It's not going anywhere. So we actually ran down, got his older brother and his friends to come help us. And that was its own kind of movie sort of situation with threats and other things. So his friends come, and they start to push the car. And then this snow groomer, the lights of the snow groomer that was kind of above us, came over our heads, the snow groomer. And so these guys all ran away. We're standing on the mountain like, no. A couple minutes later, he comes back with Jeff's dad and the same guys. This is Mr. Cook, who I actually worked for. I was a dishwasher for one of his restaurants. We moved the car, and I said, Mr. Cook, is there any way we could not tell my dad about this? <laughs> and listen, Mr. Cook never told my dad. That's mercy. <laughs> that is not getting what you deserve, right? And, and listen, God doesn't always give us what we deserve. He doesn't punish us at times when he should. Like when the Israelites forgot all about him and worshipped a golden calf. God didn't immediately destroy them. He showed them mercy. And he does the same for us. Now, what's really interesting is that God first describes himself in relation to our sin and failure. He describes himself in how he reacts to our rebellion. He doesn't first describe himself with his positive attributes, like his power or majesty or beauty or greatness or wisdom. He describes himself in relation to us and our sin and our weakness. He says, the first thing that you need to know about me 
is that I'm merciful. You want to know who I am? I love to show mercy. I love to be patient with people who are a mess. I love to not give people what they deserve, to withhold what they deserve. I love to surprise people with mercy. I am compassionate. See, this is God's heart for us. He loves to apply mercy and forgiveness to our sin. He lives to do this. God loves to meet sinners in their sin and to rescue them with mercy and grace and forgiveness. Dane Ortland says his highest priority, God's highest priority and deepest delight and first reaction, his heart is merciful and gracious. He gently accommodates himself to our terms rather than overwhelming us with his. See, God's heart is not to punish us or to crush us or to judge us. He's not trigger happy. He's merciful. 2 Corinthians 1 says he is the father of mercies. And Ephesians 2 says he is rich in mercy. That means that he has a multitude of mercies. He has a mercy for every kind of sin and misery. Are you angry? Do you struggle with angry, with angry thoughts or angry words? God has a mercy for that. Are you worried, anxious, fearful? God has a mercy for that. Are, are you full of shame over what you've done? God has a mercy for that. Are you discouraged and beaten down? God has a mercy for that. Are you trapped in a particular sin or addiction? God has a mercy for that. Are you depressed or unforgiving or bitter or lazy or unfaithful? God has a mercy for all of these things. He has an infinite storehouse of mercy. He's a trillionaire when it comes to mercy. Your sins are not going to run him dry. Dane Ortland again says, as you consider the Father's heart for you, remember that he is the Father of mercies. He is not cautious in his tenderness towards you. He multiplies mercies matched to your every need and there is nothing he would rather do. Remember, said the Puritan John Flavel, that this God in whose hand are all the creatures is your father and is much more tender of you than you are or can be of yourself. Let me read that again. He is much more tender of you than you are or can be of yourself. Your gentlest treatment of yourself is less gentle than the way your heavenly father handles you. His tenderness towards you outstrips what you are even capable of toward yourself. That's amazing. But you might say, well, yeah, but I just keep squandering his mercy. I keep abusing it. I, I just keep doing the same sinful things again and again. You know what God does? He pours out more mercy. You know, any other relationship like this would be abusive. We, we'd say, get out of that relationship. But God does not get out of that relationship with sinners when we trust in him. 
That's the whole point of being rich in mercy. And the Bible doesn't say that God is rich in anything else, but he is rich in mercy. And that is something we should be extremely thankful for. Now, not only is God merciful, he's also gracious. He's gracious, and God continues to describe who he is in relation to us and our sin. To be gracious means that God is, he's full of grace. It means he loves to give us what we don't deserve. We talked about this with mercy. He loves to not give us what we deserve, that's mercy. But he also loves to give us what we don't deserve. When my kids were younger, I used to use a definition to try to help them to understand. This is a simplified definition. I said to them, guys, mercy is like not getting a discipline for hitting your sister. Grace is like getting an ice cream cone even though you hit your sister. It's getting something that we don't deserve. And God is a gracious God. He is full of grace. Now, the opposite of gracious is mean, severe, cold, hateful, stingy, uncaring, unkind, exacting. That is not the God of the Bible. It might be the God of the Simpsons, or it might be how you've always thought about God, or it might be how your church portrayed God, but it's not the God of the Bible. He loves to bless those who have sinned against him. Now, for most of us, this doesn't really make sense. It's hard to compute. But sin doesn't throw us off. Sin doesn't throw God off the way it throws us off. It's very hard for us when we're wrong. We can get angry and blow up at the smallest of things. Uh, Last week, we were in this softball game, and... um, There's this ump that is really, he's just terrible. He makes really bizarre calls, but he also loves to kind of throw his weight around. And he always tempts guys. And so we're in this game. He had already dished out like a couple warnings to, you know, boot people out of the game. And so our team is on edge. It's the very end of the game. One of the guys hits the ball. It's a ground ball, but we all know he's going to make it. He's fast, flies down to first, beats the throw by like a good full step. And the ump goes, You're out. Our team exploded. One of the guys, one of the young bucks, Elijah Stegor, a good friend, he's in one of our young bucks, he he doesn't even ever sit down on the bench. So guys were jumping off the bench. He's just pacing like a cage. He's got a lot of energy. He jumps straight up in the air, like six feet in the air. It's like, whoa, he just disappeared on that call. We... We don't do well. Listen, we do not do well when people, and it's a church league, by the way, I just want to mention that. (laughs) I wish we didn't call it a church league. Anyway, um, we, we do not do well when people wrong us. All of our instincts are to defend ourselves and to make the person who wronged us pay. For instance, what do you do when you get cut off in traffic? Enough said. (laughs) We are quick 
to anger. But you know what else it says in verse 6? It says that God is slow to anger. Again, this is God describing who God is and how he relates to us. Being slow to anger is the opposite of us, and it's the opposite of what we think God is like. We assume that God is ready to explode on us. He has the gavel in his hand, and he's ready to bring it down on our heads. Or maybe we don't picture God with that level of anger. Maybe he's just eternally disappointed with us or just fed up with us. Or maybe he, he just frowns when he thinks about us. Or maybe his patience has run out a long time ago. I mean, think about how tempting we must be to God. Seriously, I mean, we must be really frustrating to God. I mean, let's say that you're God. All right, you just delivered your people from slavery and from their enemies. You brought them to safety. You provided for them. You gave them food and water. And since they're your people and you want to be in a relationship with them, you call your first family member, your first, I'm sorry, family meeting together, and they've already abandoned you. They are worshiping a golden cow that they just made. Now, if I'm God, that's game over right there. I mean, I'm bringing out lightning bolts at that point. I'm frying everyone, all right? And it's obvious if you read the Bible, these people are going to be a constant problem. They're going to be a constant problem throughout the entire book, and they certainly aren't going to be worth the effort. But see, that's, that's not what God is like. That's what we're like. God is slow to anger. He, he's not like us. We don't act like God, and also we don't tend to value what God values. Things like humility, and gentleness, and mercy, those things don't make a lot of headlines. I mean, think about what we tend to praise and to glorify. Power, and wealth, and beauty, and success, and strength, and revenge, and humor, and popularity, and winning. These are the kind of things that we value, but God doesn't glory in those things. He doesn't value the same things we value. His glory is in his gentleness. His glory is in his gentleness, in his tenderness. His glory is in his ability to forgive. His glory is in his love for the broken and hopeless and lowly. I was reading a, a book recently about Mother Teresa. And she gave her entire life to care for the poor and dying in Calcutta, India. She took the worst, most destitute, sickest, loneliest people into her homes. She took abandoned, deformed babies that were discarded on the streets. She took lepers whose bodies were rotting away and who smelled horrifically. She took untouchables, the lowest caste, who were covered with roaches and rats, and she would bring them into her home so that they could die with love and dignity. Now, many the nuns nursed back to health, but many they just held and loved and cared for while they died. I read one story of a woman that had been literally left on top of a garbage dump. She had maggots 
coming out of her wound. She was close to death. And Mother Teresa lifted her up and brought her into one of her homes, washed her wounds, cared for her, and loved her for the few weeks she had left in her life. Mother Teresa held her in her arms as she died. Now, there is something in Mother Teresa that we all value. We all know that she is worthy of praise and glory because she showed us the heart of God. She showed us what God is like. God is glorified because he loves us even though we're broken. Like the people that Mother Teresa cared for, we're diseased with sin. We're spiritually destitute and rotten. And unlike the people that Mother Teresa cared for, we're rebels. We run away from God. We worship other gods. We ignore God and we curse him. And he still bends down to care for us in our suffering and sorrow. Suffering that we often bring on ourselves. His glory is that he still loves us and forgives us. His glory is that he loves to bless those who are sinners. And this is how Jesus described his heart in Matthew 11. He says, the first thing you need to know about me is that I am gentle. Oh, you want to know who I am? I'm gentle. And I'm lowly. That sounds a lot like merciful and gracious. But this is how Jesus related to sinners. He was gentle and lowly. He was willing to be pressed down into the dirt with those who were low. See, most people think that the God of the Old Testament, God the Father, is angry and wrathful. While the God of the New Testament, Jesus, is loving and gentle. Exodus 34 shows us a father with the same loving heart as Jesus. Now, verse 6 then says that he, I love this, abounds in steadfast love. That word for steadfast love is hard to translate. We don't have a word in English that captures the depth of what's being said. It combines the ideas of love and loyalty. It's usually translated steadfast love, a love that's firmly fixed. A love that cannot be moved, that is rock solid. God is abounding in this kind of love. He abounds in steadfast love. Now to abound just means to have great plenty or, or large numbers, to overflow. So God is overflowing in steadfast love. He's overflowing in loyal love. And his loyalty and love surges toward us even when we sin. Think about a father whose son is accused of something or, or is injured. And it's the son's own fault. When my younger brother was in high school, he and some friends were, were partying. And later that night, they decided to go for a drive. The kid driving went way too fast. He flipped the car, and he died. My brother and the other kids survived. My dad didn't go off on my brother. He loved him, and he held him tighter than he probably ever had. And it is 
the same with God. His affection for us grows stronger when we sin and when we suffer. Now, not only is God abounding in steadfast love, verse 7 says, he keeps steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. So these are all different words for sin. So sin is doing the opposite of what is right. Transgression is to intentionally disobey. Iniquity is, is twistedness or, or perversion. What this is saying is that God's willing to, to forgive whatever variety of sin you choose. Whatever you do, God wants to forgive it all, even sins that seem unimaginable. In the award-winning musical Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton has committed adultery with another woman. And he's kept it secret for years. But finally, the whole thing comes out. It's printed in the papers. And his beloved wife, Eliza, finds out. It is a devastating part of the musical. And one of the questions you have at that point is, is she able to forgive him? But what is going to happen here? And toward the end of the movie, and during a song called It's Quiet Uptown, Eliza somehow finds a way to forgive him. It is a powerful scene of forgiveness. And in the song it says, See them walking in the park long after dark, taking in the sights of the city. Look around, look around, Eliza. They are trying to do the unimaginable. And she sings, there are moments that the words don't reach. There's a grace too powerful to name. We push away what we can never understand. We push away the unimaginable. They are standing in the garden, Alexander by Elisa's side. She takes his hand. It's quiet uptown. Forgiveness. Can you imagine? Forgiveness. Can you imagine? See, forgiveness often does seem unimaginable for us. But forgiveness is the only logical outworking of God's mercy and grace. Forgiveness is the culmination of God's mercy and grace. Having a God that's merciful and gracious doesn't really help us if it's just theoretical. If God is just kind of a nice guy, just a gracious old grandpa, that doesn't help us practically because we have a major problem. And we need mercy and grace to function for us, to go to work for us. We see that problem more clearly in verse 7, where it says, where God says about himself, but who will by no means, God will by no means clear the guilty. See, God is not a careless old grandpa or a lazy judge. He's perfectly just and holy. And that presents a significant problem for us because he must punish our sins. If he ignored our sins, he would be unjust. So how can God show us all the love that we've been talking about? How can God be just and still love us? How can he forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin? Well, I'll tell you, by crucifying his own son on the cross. The greatest act of mercy and love 
that has ever taken place on this earth was when Jesus Christ died on a Roman cross. Jesus took upon himself all of our sin, all of our disobedience, all of our perversion. The Bible actually says he became sin for us. He allowed sin to be credited to him, and then he died on the cross taking the punishment we deserve. He received the wrath and judgment of God in our place so that we could receive mercy and grace and love from God. But God's mercy and grace don't automatically come to everyone. It comes to those who humble themselves to those who open their arms to receive it. It comes to those who recognize and repent of their sins and believe that the death of Jesus on the cross is the only thing that can save them. That's how you can experience the incredible, indescribable love and mercy of God. Now when verse 7 says that God will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation, he's not saying that God's going to punish innocent children. He's saying that our sins do affect our children. They get passed down in a sense. But when we decide to humble ourselves and surrender our lives to Christ, we get love and faithfulness for a thousand generations. God will punish sin, but what he loves to do what he longs to do is to pour out his mercy and love on you. He will punish sin if he has to, but he wants to pour out his love a thousand times more. I know this is hard for us to believe, but it's true. And if you believe it, it will change your life.